Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me on this sports podcast. Hope everybody out there had a wonderful Christmas, a great holiday. It's the last show of 2020. A lot to break down in the world of football. A long, action-packed show with two guests to help me do just that. First up, Tom Weisenbach. First time talking to him in about a year. We break down his Eagles, their troubles this year. It was a heartbreaking week 16 for my Browns. And we go over all the playoff scenarios. Will the Packers, led by MVP frontrunner Aaron Rodgers, get that one seed in the NFC? How will the playoff picture shake out? A lot to discuss in the world of the NFL. And some hoops talk, some 76ers talk. Tom's a big Philly guy, as you know, if you listen to this show. So we break down that, the NBA starting up as well. And then Kent Brown, my gambling degenerate brethren, we talk about the college football playoff. The four teams in the matchups, which we'll see Clemson and Ohio State, along with Alabama and Notre Dame, and some other general betting advice as we get ready for the New Year's Six Bowls to go. It's Kent Brown and first up Tom Weisenbach on the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, back again. It's been almost a year since I last chatted with this guy calling in from the East Coast to talk a lot about some football. Both our teams in a state of misery after week 16. It's my good buddy, Tom Weisenbach, former co-worker at NFL Network. Tom, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me again, Mitch. Yeah, I was waiting for this call. It's been a while. It has. It's been, uh, you know, the turbulent year. We're going to actually, you know, close out the year uh, in, in fitting fashion, just talking sports and talking about the NFL and, and another season that uh, – was hit by COVID not as hard as some other ones. Uh, somehow, some way, we're going into Week 17 without any games canceled. There is that. It, it hasn't been easy, but uh, we've got a full slate. We've got an extra playoff team, seven teams in the playoffs, and they haven't had to postpone any weeks. So, on one hand, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, the NFL was pulling out all the stops to make sure that the season was complete, that no games were canceled. There were a few judgment calls that needed to be made during the season. You know, the Broncos going without a quarterback is a highlight that comes at the top of my mind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is where they make their money, and the networks weren't going to have it any other way. They mean a Wednesday afternoon football game that uh, preempts a Christmas tree lighting because the Christmas tree lighting gets more viewers is another yeah. <laughs> highlight. But that was uh, 2020 in the NFL this year. So I, I bring that up on one hand because – as you know, I'm a uh, loyal Cleveland Browns fan, and last week was about as miserable as you can you can have a season like this where the Browns lose to the Jets. And there are a lot of reasons why they lost this game on the field. Cody Parkey comes to mind. Can't believe he's still on the team. <laughs> Baker Mayfield fumbling the ball a couple times, including on a QB sneak at the end of the game. But the big thing everyone's going to talk about, and understandably so, is that they didn't have any of their receivers. They were all deemed close contacts with some players that did test positive for COVID, all sharing that hot tub recovery pool together. Uh, Game goes on as planned. Browns lose, don't have any weapons on offense. Not, again, to make excuses, Tom, but there is the frustration in my voice and in others that looks at a team like the Ravens that, you know, the NFL was willing to work with, push the game back a few days. The Broncos, like the Browns, were on the short end of the stick and just had to suck it up and play with what they had. This is a big big loss opportunity for the Browns, who now have to essentially win to guarantee that they're into the playoffs, and uh, COVID hits the team. So I am frustrated, not the only reason why they lost, but uh, definitely hurts losing to a terrible team like the Jets. 
Yeah, I mean, as a as a Browns as a Browns fan, you should know that nothing comes easy, and if you're going to make the playoffs, it's got to come down to Week 17. Mm. Um, it's kind of interesting too. You make you make that point about the the NFL kind of working with the with the uh, Ravens, and it's it's almost as though the, the way it was explained that one Monday Night Football when the couple when the news broke that there were going to be two games, I believe it was the Ravens, yeah, that put, got pushed back, and the the reason that they had given was like they had not contained it in their building and so yeah. they're almost like getting the benefit of the doubt because they didn't do the protocols the right way <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's backwards where it's like if you have it contained and you did everything right we're going to play and give you a disadvantage but if you get a case you might as well let it get out of control so that you can have the game on your terms right the ravens strength coach was fine you know they found them in breach of the protocol like he was walking around the facility or i don't have everything in front of me but without a mask on essentially and they got fined 250 grand for it that just came down recently so it wasn't like it had just happened and I'm not again. I'm not I'm really not trying to make excuses on this, and I think that part of it was the playoff picture is coming up. Where if you delay this Browns Jets game, you know, regardless of what happens, Browns win. Then you got to maybe push the Browns Steelers Week 17 game back, and then now we're talking about teams not being properly rested. In this case, maybe two teams for the playoffs. So it was a messy situation, but it was also a winnable game for the Browns, and that's where a lot of the frustration lies. Uh, for Cleveland, uh, a team that had some breakdowns defensively. And also, as a fan and watching this team, one of the main reasons, Tom, they've been successful this year was the offensive line. They were banged up. Jedrick Wills, who was a close contact for COVID, ended up being cleared but missed the game with another illness. He was out, other linemen being hurt. Baker's been you know, having a great year this year, but he hasn't been hit. He's had a lot of time to make his throws. This game he didn't, and I think we saw the results. Yeah, I mean, Baker's been very poised all season long, even though they've had their issues with the, with the receiving core, like you said. And the Jets are hungry. I mean, they, they're 2-0. and They don't want to be the laughingstock of the league anymore. And I think, you know, being at home and, and Cleveland having to, to travel and deal with the distractions, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly an any given Sunday, you know, as much as you hate to give the Jets any credit, but they did themselves a disservice, but at the same time, they're, they're still trying to, you know, professionals to, to finish the season out strong because at the end of the day, they're trying to, you know, most of the players on their roster are auditioning for other teams. Yeah. The fans obviously are upset because they lost their chance at Trevor Lawrence and we could, you know, laugh about how Jets fans were just furious with this two game win streak, but you, you touched on it perfectly. Like the players and coaches, they don't want to lose. No one wants to be attached to an Owen 16 season and wants to be deemed a failure. And, it is a lot harder to tank in a sport like football than basketball or baseball or any other sports. I mean, this is, you know, a, a, still a group of professionals. I think we forget that a lot of times. The other side of this coin was that the Steelers beat the Colts. The Colts were up 24 to 7 in the second half and could have even pulled away, stretched their lead further. In a way, the Browns get help from the Steelers with the Colts losing because the Colts dropped down to that last playoff seed, even though it cost the Browns the division. Steelers coming back and, and almost losing four straight games after starting 11-0. and This has been a fascinating fall from grace to wash from Pittsburgh. The second half of this game, Tom, was the first time I think we saw the offense look good in about a month where Pittsburgh finally was able to connect on the deep shot and get something out of their running game. It hasn't been pretty, but this might have been the wake-up call the Steelers desperately needed. Yeah, the Steelers are one of those teams that's, you know, constantly in the playoffs, you just touched on it a little bit. The uh, 11-0 start, a lot of people were calling them the worst 11-0 team. And 
if you look at the schedule early on, it seems like they were given pretty easy schedule. You start off with the Giants, Broncos, Texans, Eagles, and uh, and then they crush the Browns, the division rival. They're on their way, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of warts going into those weeks where they were being successful. That one loss kind of highlights, and then you know it can snowball. The the, the line up between winning and losing in the league is so thin yeah. that uh, that you, you can catch fire and and get cold really quickly. So. It's good to see that they are, you know, competitive. I mean, the Colts are the team that everybody's been sleeping on. I think, in my opinion, they uh, they've quietly been very, you know, steady and and solid. And I think if they make make the playoffs, that they they may be in for a run. I just want to also add that I know Roethlisberger hasn't played well, and there's questions about him. I dare any team, and as much as I dislike the Steelers, I think Mike Tomlin is just a fantastic coach. I, I dare any team to try to battle with the amount of injuries they've had on that defense to some key impact players. Pittsburgh's lost several players for the year, so I think that's been in effect too. I agree with you on the Colts, but it's funny. Uh, it, it, it's Their defense has a lot of game game players on there, a lot of big game players. The running game with Jonathan Taylor is picking up, but I think the reason why people are sleeping on the Colts, Tom, is Rivers. I mean, I think he is, at his age, at his level of inconsistency, you don't know what you're going to get from a week-to-week basis. And I think if the quarterback position was a little short up, a little stronger, I don't think as many people would sleep on the Colts. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest X factor is Phillip Rivers and, and his age and, and his ability to get the ball to these receivers. I know uh, we'll probably touch on it later, but there's a lot of scuttlebutt about a certain quarterback in Philadelphia who might be more comfortable in that offense next season. But um, yeah, Following up on that, I think Rivers is the veteran leader that they kind of needed as a stabilizer as, behind that good offensive line. You know, Andrew Luck could have probably had a very good two years, if you count last year, going into, you know, these seasons barring his health. But they needed a stopgap to get them into the future, and, and Philip Rivers seems to be the, the guy that, to do that. I mean, there's five 10-win teams. Who knows who's going to be in the playoffs <laughs> for, the, uh, for the AFC? It's going to be fun. It's insane, uh, and I know there's uh, a lot of talk about that quarterback position in Indy. There's been also some talk, too, and I think you might be on that side of uh, there's a certain coach uh, of the Colts that you know a lot of people in Philly would like to see back there, maybe think has uh, more credit for what had happened in the past. But I know you're a Frank Reich fan of what he's done, and I, I think this is another great coaching job you know, with what he's done and how he's gotten this team ready to go. Yeah, really solid team, and... Uh... Jonathan Taylor is is another reason. Like the rookie running back, veteran quarterback, you gotta like that. I mean, they have the pieces, and the division's garbage. So it's and it, that also helps. Yeah, and you know what? They're on the outside now. We're gonna get to playoff scenarios uh, in a little bit, but uh, Tom Wise seems like every division yeah. has two good teams and two <laughs> bad teams in the AFC. Yeah, Tom Weisenbach here on the Money Mitch Effect. I look at that in the same regard. I mean, I don't think we're in disagreement here. The AFC is just a deeper conference this year where you're going to have, it looks like a 10-win team, You know, definitely a 10-win team is going to miss the playoffs, possibly even an 11-win team, depending on how it all shakes out. And a lot of that is because of the game that took place on Saturday night. That Dolphins-Raiders game, I dare anybody out there to find a more ridiculous finish to what we saw, where you have maybe about five or six storylines that could have just stood on its own legs where you have Tua getting benched, the Raiders, you know, playing ultra-conservative, blowing the game multiple times, uh, some just terrible breakdowns in both secondaries. But the Dolphins find a way to win on that ridiculous Fitzpatrick pass where he wasn't even looking. The Dolphins are a team that people are still trying to figure out, Tom. They're 10-5, and and they still are in the process of 
trying to figure out if they want to start the rookie quarterback who they have invested a lot of uh, time and capital and money into, or if they want to go with the old gunslinger Fitzpatrick, who right now I don't think anybody would disagree is the better option for a team trying to contend for a playoff spot. I've just been watching football a lot of time, and I can't remember ever seeing a scenario like this where a team is having to weigh whether the future or the present is more important as they contend for the playoffs. Yeah, and it's it's almost just riding that hot hand or a college type thing, looking at Alabama and Saban making that same decision with those same players uh, as far as two is concerned. They're fighting for the playoffs. They haven't seen the playoffs in a long time, and I think they're trying to do anything that it takes, especially in a time in that division where the New England Patriots are eliminated, that two teams from the AFC East will make the playoffs they're just trying to get there, you know. <laughs> if, yeah. you, if, if, if the game, you know, wins within reach and uh, and the and the veteran can get it done, a little Fitz magic, you can uh, ring that rag one more time. John Gruden last forty-seven games as a coach, eighteen and twenty-nine. It's a worse win percentage than both Jack Del Rio and Tom Cable. Just throwing that out there. Well, you know, he's an old school guy, and uh, it's his second year. I think they they started off hot, and uh, the sustainability has been an issue defense is just not going to get it done and uh you know i think that they're like they invested a lot in him they're not making a move anytime soon uh but you'd like to see more return on that and you know closing out games i think what's frustrated a lot of raiders fans and people who follow the raiders is that they have more talent in this year by far than any year in the past and they're just not getting it done in the final moments uh just want to get back to the dolphins flores has been a remarkable coach all year managing you know managing this situation he showed me a lot last year when he wouldn't just actively tank, when they you know, upset some teams, the Patriots Week 17, it cost them a bye, comes to mind. But I do think that the, that the Dolphins, who have the toughest game in Week 17, having to play against the Bills, them being in this playoff hunt is the most surprising you know, storyline, the most surprising team in the mix. Even the Browns, even the Colts, the Dolphins being 10-5 and five with the chance to play their way into the playoffs has been the most uh, remarkable, dare I say, improbable story. Well, they did spend a lot of money in the offseason finding a, a lot of free agents uh, on one-year deals, and they have a rookie contract on their rookie deal, which seems to be the formula for formidable teams uh, when it comes to the playoffs. So now's the time. Like, they're on the clock with Tua. They decided to start them halfway through the season, even before the halfway mark, and, and they know that that's the formula, and they're on the clock. So that's, let's sign a bunch of veteran free agents on short-term contracts, milk this rookie deal and see what we have and it's succeeding so far it is it is and we're gonna see how week 17 plays out where they play the bills two is gonna start fitzpatrick's waiting and ready this is gonna be fascinating uh before we go to the nfc tom i just want to talk about the two you know the other teams at the top of the pecking order in the afc it looks like it's chiefs and bills right now and it's hard to say this about a team that won the super bowl has lost one game in basically a cal- in, in over a calendar year but would you consider the Chiefs to just be kind of sleepy? Because, you know, they have been losing in a lot of these games. They've had to pull out some, like against the Falcons, have been against bad teams. But you think they're just bored, sleepwalking? Or do you think there's some real problems here? Because they haven't looked great. They've had to kind of find a way to win against teams that you'd think they could get by just based on natural talent. Uh, I would say yes. However, if you look at last year's playoffs, the same thing happened. They were just as sleepy in the game against the Texans. The Texans run a fake punt, and then it's you know a snowball rolling down the hill for the second time. Make, making that analogy, anyway. <laughs> the Chiefs just kind of are the Chiefs. They can, I feel like they can flip that switch and turn it on one of these times. It's not that switch is going to go, and then the power doesn't work. 
So, yeah, something to be concerned about, but I don't think there's much there. I think until they show that they can't, you know, flip that switch, I, w- I would believe that there's electricity power in it. That's good. That, that's uh, that's good. You really talked me through that metaphor. Uh, isn't it just funny, though? That, <laughs> isn't it funny that it just that's just how it works? Like, if you've done it before, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt until you physically get knocked out of the playoffs. But any other team doing this, any, any literally any other team 14-1, and one, that plays like this, we're like, you know, I just think they're going to be doomed in the playoffs. But because the Chiefs have proven it, they get all the benefit as they should. Well, they almost they were down to the Chargers in week two this year, and yeah. they pulled that out over time. Like, there's countless examples of them being down early in games. Mahomes kind of realizing that he's in a competitive game, and then just turning it on, throwing it deep to Tyreek, or they have just so many weapons that they're a matchup nightmare for anybody, any defense. I would, and I've said this, you know, going into this week, I'm reaffirmed it now as we head to week 17. Like, if any team outside of the Chiefs and the Bills makes the Super Bowl, I'd be kind of shocked to a degree. The Bills wouldn't shock me at this point. Based on how they've played, Josh Allen has transformed himself into an elite, accurate passer, which, as a fan of his going into the season, I didn't exactly see coming. This is an offensive juggernaut. Diggs leads the league in receiving yards and receptions. And them going through the Chiefs, while I wouldn't necessarily obviously make them the favorite if that is the AFC Championship game, it wouldn't shock me based on how well this team's playing. Yeah, I would still, I still kind of like the ten, the Titans and their okay. formula and Rabel and that X factor. But you said, I mean, Pittsburgh's probably the the weakest twelve win team we've seen as we touched on with their their most recent uh, play, and then whatever the wild card team is. But yeah, I think Buffalo is. Solid. You know what I mean? They're, it's not like there's any of those AFC playoff contenders that are not used to work, you know, uh, playing in cold weather. So, so that you can throw that out the window. Yeah. Uh, aside with maybe Miami, uh, but they're in that division, so they play in it every year. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if Buffalo were in the AFC Championship game, but it, I mean, it also wouldn't excite me. <laughs> and I think that's. <laughs> There's not much excitement in this in this field except for Kansas City and maybe Pittsburgh if if they light it up. But well, I would I would push back a little. I do think the Bills have been more exciting this year, and I think part of that's been they've had to reallocate some of the resources to offense versus defense with how Allen's been playing, especially. Uh, and and where I would I guess disagree with the Titans, I think they're they're a team that could beat anybody, but I don't see them stretching putting together four solid weeks in a row to make that deep playoff run. Their defense has just been, I mean, I'll flat out say it, atrocious at times. And they strike me as a team, based on some recent results, that they have to start pretty fast. You know, if they, if they fall behind early like they did against the Packers this week, like they did against the Browns a few weeks ago, then suddenly you're not able to kind of unleash Henry on, on the team. And, and while they can still put up points with Tannehill passing the ball and running the ball, you know, they're at their best when Henry is just gaining seven, eight yards a, a pop, and they're milking the clock and just marching down the field methodically. So I, I think the Titans are a wild card, and not in the traditional sense, but they're a team that could, you know, scare everybody. But for them to play three, four weeks in a row consistently, I just haven't seen it this year. Yeah, that's a fair point with the, the new format, especially without the bye. Yeah. And uh, here's another point, though. Tennessee did beat Buffalo 42-16 to 16 earlier this season. But to your point, they, they got up. You know, 21-10 to 10 in the first half, and we're able to milk that clock. <laughs> Tuesday night football, how could I forget that game? Uh, we've <laughs> seen football on every day of the week this year. 
uh, which is great, uh, which is great for sure. Uh, all right, let's look at the NFC now, Tom Weisenbach on the Money Mitch Effect. Every week it's kind of been a reoccurring you know, gag on this show, who's the best team in the NFC? Because this year, I more be more than any in the last decade, it's completely wide open and unpredictable in my mind. But you have to give credit to the Green Bay Packers who are on the inside track for that number one seed, the only buy, as we've mentioned uh, a bunch here, and making everybody come up to the north and go through the cold is another added bonus there if the Packers get that one seed. They are a team that is, like many, you know, like every team, they don't, you know, are they aren't flawless, but they do a lot of things great. Rodgers, I think, has got his hands firmly on the MVP trophy. Devontae Adams is in the mix for Offensive Player of the Year along with some others. The Packers, Tom, have a pretty simple formula, and it revolves around Aaron Rodgers playing at an all-time high level. It's a consistent. It's a consistent team. I mean, I, there are anybody can get upset. Like the AFC, I, I don't think that they're unlike the AFC. I think that there are a lot of teams that could make the Super Bowl, and it's not surprising. But consistency gets results, and I think the Packers have been clearly the most consistent team in the back half of this year. Yeah, and I guess uh, drafting Jordan Love did did light that fire that they were looking for in Aaron, and that's all they needed. He didn't need another receiver. He didn't. He didn't no. need an offensive lineman. Can we? Can we also just say like they, the receiver argument never made a lot of sense to me, uh, as you know, as you know, you know they say he never had a receiver drafted in the first round. How many receivers drafted in the first round truly pan out? And with Devontae Adams and with some of the weapons that they have, <laughs> I know that. As you know, fan. <laughs> yeah, you do. I know that as a Browns fan. They they messed up maybe not addressing their defense. That's a fully fair, or, you know, that's a fully fair comparison. But the whole we need a receiver in the first round just to check off some box that never sat well with me. Um, but no, I mean how the team's been playing with Rodgers and with a running game now. I mean, think about that fact. Like they haven't really the first couple, you know, the first half of Aaron Rodgers' prime, so to speak. They never really ran the ball at an elite level. Definitely not like this. Yeah, and Aaron Jones really showed flashes. Uh... I believe last year or the year before when he was the lead back uh, after they had a slew of injuries and Aaron Jones really looked like the guy. And, and right now it's just the Packers doing what the Packers do. The, the point that you made about home field advantage is the biggest point, I think leading into the playoffs. Cause I'm looking at this slate of playoff teams and it's dome. It's, Florida. Warm weather, with the exception of Chicago, it's Arizona, the Rams, Tampa Bay, and New Orleans, aside from Seattle, is the other perennial. And they have to go to Green Bay to play, and that's the biggest advantage I think they will have going into the playoffs. Yeah. It's huge. Uh, maybe as much now. It'd be like if Buffalo could have got their hands on the one seed as well. Um, but no, in AFC. But no, it's it's going to be big for them. Again, it's not decided yet. There's a lot still to be <laughs> determined in Week 17. I've asked a lot of guests on this show, and I guess we're at the, the, the ending, the finale of the regular season. Who's that team in the NFC right now that you're buying stock in? We've got already touched on Green Bay, and I think they deserve to be in the driver's seat. But of that next bunch, is there anybody that you're feeling is primed to make a run and maybe get to the Super Bowl? This year? Yeah, this year. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I was this trying year. to make a joke. As <laughs> far as trying to, I'd, I'd pick the Falcons or something for the draft pick and, uh, yeah. and their situation. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the team that could make a run. I'm, I'm holding out hope that an NFC East team can win a game in the playoffs, but that's not like going to the Super Bowl. Uh, Arizona would be fun to see make a run if they can snatch one of these wild card spots. 
Yeah, I, I was higher really, on there's Arizona. There's too many teams eligible right now. Arizona, something's wrong with Kyler Murray. It just seems that way. And if there's not, then Cliff Kingsbury's coaching has just been a, completely atrocious. I mean, that still might be true, but you know, they lost that game to, to San Francisco that really cost them. You know, the inside track at a playoff spot. Uh, and I just think it's been it's been tough um, for them to you know yeah. see Murray who and was Tampa Bay is the other fire. one. Tampa Bay. Now that is the trendy pick because that is the classic. That is the classic. We know how much talent they have. There's time for them to put it all together. Uh, but you do run the risk of you know weighing those eggs that they've laid this year. I mean, they lose to the Saints twice. You know, the second one, both those games were really atrocious and. You know they've they've had some some inconsistencies for sure. Um, I just I do want to they talk are about peaking now though. They are peaking now, uh, and you know it helps when you play With the Antonio Lions. Brown and... <laughs> yeah, true. That's fair. And the uh, Falcons and the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention the Saints because they're the other team that's looking like if Green Bay slips up against Chicago, they could get that one seed, and no one's really putting them in that you know Saints elite you know, basket, so to speak, that they've been in the past. And I think that's fair, fair in a sense, because Breeze has been banged up, hasn't played at the level, is over 40, is, is struggling. But if you take, the, if you isolate the other components, Tom, this has been my point, Kamara is playing at the highest level he's played as a pro. And that defense has never really been better, I would argue, in the entire Breeze era. I mean, at least in the last, you know, nine plus years since the Super Bowl run. So they've got an elite defense in my mind. They've got a good running game. Can Breeze step up? Can Michael Thomas get back to being a factor in the passing game? Because it's that simple to me. If, if Breeze plays at a high level, big if, of course, this is absolutely in the running for best team in the NFC. Absolutely, and it's just if they come to play and uh, they've proven that they can do it with Drew Breeze or Taysom Hill or they kind of have the gadgets and they have the, the solid defense to fall back on, play field position game. They have the Alvin Kamara you know, X factor of, we talk about Tennessee and they really rely on just hand, you know, turning around and handing the ball to Derrick Henry when, and, and that means they have to get the lead in games. I think the same is true with the saints, but they also have a really good passing game. Andrew Brees, you know what I mean? They almost have like that. Oh, by the way, they have that really good passing uh, game. And, uh, and Alvin Kamara is uh, no small part in that game either. And like you said, he's playing six touchdowns. Let's unbelievable. (laughs) Insane. That's for a running back. That's insane. Like we're freaking out when a quarterback throws six touchdown passes. Like it's unfathomable how how dominant he was the other day. I see him as a uh, uh, you know unique one of one, so to speak. I also, and I hate to call my shot on this, I think he's going to last a lot longer than the average running back because how he plays the game and, and how he can be valuable both in the passing game and in the running game. I think he's got a long career ahead of him. Maybe more so, maybe more so than the short shelf life of you know the average running back um, in that regard. Uh, another team we didn't talk about though is the Seahawks. They were my preseason Super Bowl pick, and I still have the same worries that a lot of teams do. In the a lot of people do about the Seahawks, and that the line's kind of shaky, and the defense wasn't great to start the season. It's gotten a lot better since Jamal Adams has come back and the trade for Carlos Dunlop. But they're going to be a team that you can pressure, and and Russ is going to have to make a lot of plays happen. So. They're not without their vulnerabilities. You know, the other team, Tom, too, that almost was in that case, but now they're going to have to fight to make the playoffs is the Rams. Because I, I might I might take their defense over any team in the NFLs, and yet because of their offensive inju- offensive inefficiencies and now Jared Goff's injury, they might miss the playoffs with seven teams. 
Yeah, I blame. I just blame the NFC West on it being one of the you know vastly improved divisions, and, and they've been beating each other up. Deepest um, for sure, for sure the deepest division. Yeah, I mean Arizona's on the rise. San Francisco was in the Super Bowl last year, <laughs> yeah. and and they're quarterback injuries away from kind of comp- repeating the run. I I mean there's a lot to be said there for a long season, but mostly the quarterback injury was, was a main factor in their season. Seattle, you talk about their vulnerabilities. I think at the end of the day, like we talked about the Chiefs, Russell's been there before, and and these games are going to come down to the fourth quarter. I imagine a Seahawks-Packers game, because why not? There's always a Seahawks-Packers game that matters, and uh, and it's going to come down to the two, two quarterbacks duking it out at the end of the game, and, and that's just kind of how it is in the NFL a lot of the times, is that fourth quarter, which quarterback's going to get it done. The Rams... Uh, maybe have been in those games and and Goff uh, doesn't have that experience he has to pull it out but yeah I just think that the the Rams have I mean it's just the NFL this year and and, and who and I'm sure they're dealing with similar COVID issues and and all that side of things too so it's just a lot of distractions that can affect the team uh, more than just the play on the field. Man, the running game is starting to come along with Cam Akers, then he gets hurt. So there is adversity there. Goff is out for at least this game, depending on what happens with the thumb injury. A lot going on there, and the playoff picture is still uh, you know, in peril for a lot of these teams. Before we get to forecasting Week 17, Tom, uh, I do want to wrap this uh, Week 16 recap up with talking about the NFC East. And uh, what a ride it's been, because <laughs> here we are Week 17 with three teams in the hunt, unfortunately not your Eagles. And the stat I heard that just absolutely blew my mind is that the Giants are in the running for both the division and a top three draft pick, depending on how things shake out. So that's what we got. One game away to, 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 see, to see where they're going to be picking and maybe winning the division. But it's, uh, it's been an adventurous uh, year for, week for the NFC East with now Washington essentially playing for a shot to get in. Dallas is kind of starting to peak and the Giants hovering around with, unfortunately, your birds on the outside at 4-10-1. Yeah, why well, be good when you can be bad and still uh, still win the division and still get a top 15 pick? I mean, I think that's win-win situation right there. They've all conspired against the rest of the NFL to, uh, <laughs> to, to lose to each other yeah. in order for everybody to be in it in the last week while also still being under 20 picks uh, in the draft. I think it's brilliant. I mean, the NFC East storylines is is almost comical. You have a team that controls their own destiny for the division that just cut their quarterback. That started last week. That started the season. You know, the Giants have looked just atrocious recently. They're dealing with injuries left and right. They, you know, they weren't expected to be here. And I think that's what I come back to. Before the season started, like most people, I looked at this division and thought, okay, if Dallas and Philly aren't contending, it's disasters for those teams. Washington and New York, it's a bonus. Like you're building towards the future. You're trying to establish something. Those teams weren't expecting to be here. And yet here we are with Dallas and, and, you know, still in the hunt, but Philly falling apart. Uh, the Wentz hurts thing is one thing, Tom, but I, I know you and I know you're a defensive guy at heart. And just watching the secondary play as poor as they've done in Philly, I think I saw the stat where it's like seven players in the NFC have gotten player of the week against the Eagles. That's where I would just be up in arms and, and wondering how you can mess up the personnel this poorly. Yeah, and it's kind of the main topic of discussion in Philadelphia for the previous for the previous what 16 weeks has been you know chicken or the egg is it Carson is it Doug is it Howie is it all of them is it Lori is it you know who what's the problem here and why <laughs> do we stink again um and so is it 
personnel begets coaching and play calling begets production on the field with the quarterback. And I think we've seen this past week that you take away Hertz's legs and he looks a lot like Carson Wentz out there, not really being able to throw to any viable receivers or have time uh, to throw the ball. I mean, they had the offensive line issues all year and uh, now I'm filibustering because I could talk about the Eagles all day. I <laughs> you forgot could. your original question. You could. Uh, I just wanted to point out the defense first, like, the Wentz hurts thing that I want to we'll, we'll oh, right. do. I just wanted to mention that the, the defense has been a huge part of this because there were games early where the Eagles were able to put up points. The defense let them down. There's obviously been games recently where Hurts has looked great and the defense has let them down. You know what was it like thirty or so like, unanswered on on Sunday? So they simply don't value the linebacker position, yeah. which puts a lot of stress in the middle of the field when you play man coverage and, yeah. and people go five wide. They've been exploiting the linebackers over the middle of the field for a long time this season, and they even made a change at that position. And that the other side of that defensive question is Darius Slay and the matchups Ooh. that he has been forced to go Ooh. after every week mm, yeah. have been very hard, but he is being paid to be a guy who's a shutdown corner, single coverage, big play slay. He finally made one this past week, but hasn't really done much of that the entire season. Granted, he's going against top one receiver after top one receiver, Devontae Adams, Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, just to name the last three before the Cowboys game, DK Metcalf. You know, there, there's countless. And so that's why that player of the week thing came up. But as a defensive coordinator, Jim Schwartz should be recognizing that, giving the guy some help. Yeah. Uh, but then that then goes back to Howie Roseman and valuing the linebacker position in the franchise to help out. You know, Jordan uh, Hicks is in Arizona being a contributor on yeah. that team, and and we're sitting sending out undrafted free agents from the Canadian Football League. <laughs> So where are you right now with uh, the future of the Eagles at quarterback? Are you this is Hurts? This should be Hurts' team. I mean, there, there's a lot of variables in this, mostly money related, where the contract extension for Wentz kicks in next year. Obviously, it would make it very hard to trade. But where are you at with the quarterback position? What's your thought process on the Eagles 2021 and beyond? Yeah, tail end of the season, I was interested to see what Hurts had. He, you know, first game came out looking like Russell Wilson light, you know, Kyler Murray ish, but. Uh... <laughs> A lot of potential there. I think that Wentz is fixable because of offensive line issues and injuries and continuity that weren't there this year, that Wentz was really almost set up to fail. And it's up to him as to whether he's going to start next year for the Eagles or not. If he's going to pout off offseason, demand a trade, figure it, you know, get a, ask for a buyout, or is he going to work, get in the gym, work his butt off, put his money where his mouth is, and work with the receivers and, you know, get it done? Now, that's also contingent upon who the coach is and what other changes there are in the uh, management for this year. But, frankly, I would say that it's leaning towards Wentz will be starting week one. I don't know if both current quarterbacks will still be on the team or not. Wow. Wow. I, I would like to think they are. I think yeah. they are, but I don't know. It depends on what – I mean, I'm a conservative Eagle fan, <laughs> yeah. and and a lot of the times they end up going the fantasy draft route with, uh, you know, countless moves that, that I wouldn't have done myself. But uh, it's hard to predict what, what these guys are capable of. 
I do think Wentz can be fixed. It's just going to take a lot of time and energy and, and effort on his part and, and might... support staff around him. I also think, too, I mean, Hurts has looked good, but let's wait and see a full season. I always say this because, mm-hmm. you know, now that you get the offseason, you also have defenses that are going to start game planning against them, too. So I wouldn't completely cut bait either. I think there's a lot to determine also at the head coaching position. I mean, Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl, but the the house is on fire around him. You know, it, let's see what happens. It looks like they may bring him back, but it's not a lock necessarily. I mean, there have been reports that he's not happy and he might step down and he might resign. And like, I, it's just, <laughs> and that's just the silly sports media yeah. kind of echo chamber that we've been living in. You know, the media almost is the reason why Wentz got benched two weeks after he probably should have gotten benched just because of the yeah. clamoring from and the questions that are constant. Tom, I do want to mention now as we wrap up this NFL talk, um, the playoff scenarios that we've been alluding to here on the Money Mitch Effect. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot that's still to be decided, especially with, uh, with you know, wild card spots, but also with division titles and seeding at stake. How do you think the NFC, we can start with the East because we just finished up on that. How is that going to shake out? Who claims that division, do you think? Unfortunately, I think I think the Eagles beat the Redskins and the Cowboys win the division. But I think the Reds, or the football team, is the team that should win the division. And I would be laughing hysterically if the Giants ended up pulling it out. <laughs> so that's my non-answer yeah. answer. And, I, and just, I guess, take on if each of them were to win. And I just watched Rex Ryan's take on it, and it was, uh, there's no way that the Eagles are going to let the Cowboys win the division, so they're going to let the Washington football team beat them this year. Okay. This week. I, I think it's Dallas, too. Giants have shown you nothing in the last couple of weeks that they're going to be able to even win this game, as funny as it would be if Jason Garrett upset his former team. But Washington, with you know, we talked about Haskins getting cut. I mean, Alex Smith... Is he going to even be able to play? And if they have to start, you know, Taylor Heineke, I just don't know how you get much out of them. I mean, even the Eagles team that's been in disarray, I, I like them to win that game and unfortunately help the Cowboys. So I think Dallas at 7-9 and nine is the safer bet. I think we're kind of similar. I just, you know, that Bears-Packers game is interesting, but I think the, the Packers are going to win that one. But I'm also thinking that, you know, Arizona – they're not going to be playing against Jared Goff in this game. I still think the Rams are going to beat the Cardinals because Kyler Murray might not play in that game too. So I think you're going to have the 8-8 eight eight Chicago Bears as that 7 seed in the playoffs, as, as funny as that may be. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. <laughs> yeah, because essentially you have, you have if the Cardinals beat the Rams, they're in. If the Cardinals beat the Rams and the Bears beat the Packers, the Rams are out. But if the Bears win... And, you know, if the Bears win, they're in outright. Now, I don't know that they beat the Packers with Aaron Rodgers playing the way he is. He's owned the Bears his whole career. Uh, so I, my, my likely scenario is Bears lose the Packers and the Cardinals blow their chance again, lose to the Rams. Does that mean the Rams and the Bears yeah. make the playoffs? Rams would be the sixth seed. Tampa's pretty, Tampa is locked into the five, and that would be Bears. So then you'd have Bears and uh, Saints in the first round of the Superdome, and that will be an ugly game. <laughs> I think I'm on that wavelength. I think yeah. I agree with you on that. That would also set up Seahawks-Rams round three in the first round. So uh, lock that in. It would be Bear- it would be Bucks cowboys or you know Bucks football team in the first round there. So the NFC doesn't have as many scenarios. It's pretty straightforward. The AFC, though, 
Tom, I'm, I'm trying to get my Browns in the playoffs any way possible, and I think the most likely way that that happens, just take the Browns-Steelers game out of it, is I need to be a Bills Mafia supporter this week because the Colts are probably not losing to Jacksonville, even though they've locked up the number one pick. The Ravens are just going to run through Cincinnati. I'm fully convinced there. The path for the Browns to make the playoffs, unfortunately, goes through Bills Mafia beating the Dolphins. And who's going to be the quarterback in the Dolphins is the question, too. Now, do you think, though, that, do you think yeah. the Bills are fully going to go for the two seed? This has been part of the debate, too. Like, do the Bills mm-hmm. take their foot off the gas, try to rest up? You're not playing for a bye, but you are playing for home field. I also look at it as momentum, too, right? Like, you want to keep rolling going into the playoffs because you still do play next week. Yeah, I don't know what Sean McDermott's mindset is. You know, uh, you want to keep certain players healthy or, you know, what's the benefit of winning the game for them? And, and then they have to consider all of that. And yeah, that's going to be the, those are going to be the games to watch for sure, which is why, uh, you know, build Dolphins at one o'clock. I don't know if it's magic, man. <laughs> you're just going to be scared. Weird. I'm scared now because it is Fitzmagic, and uh, it does intimidate me. But Browns are actually favored in that game against the Steelers because it sounds like Pittsburgh is is going to be trying to rest up and stay healthy, but I still have my doubts you know, that the Browns pull it out. Because there is a scenario, Tom, where Browns-Steelers, either as a 2-7 or the 3-6, they play again the following week in uh, the third matchup between those two teams. So um, something else to consider there. But I, I think the Ravens... The injury abounds. Oh, strategy everywhere. I think the Ravens are pretty much in. I think the Titans, you know, the Titans can win the division by beating the Texans. There's also a scenario where they miss the playoffs, but, um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that the Browns get in. I'll take it any way I can get it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that the fan base deserves a playoff burst by the Browns. Like I said, they will never make it easy, and uh, Godspeed, and I will be rooting for them. Appreciate that. Browns, Bills, two of the most long-suffering franchises. Bills are in looking great. Browns trying to. And uh, it's just unfortunate that you know there isn't that full fan scenario for the support this year. Uh, Tom Weisenbach, this was a blast. Before I let you go on the Money Mitch effect, I know you've got some opinions on the start of hoop season. So um, I guess we could start with the Philadelphia 76ers who were uh, beaten, by the un- <laughs> beaten by the undefeated Cleveland Cavaliers in the game where they rested players and then uh, you know didn't show up. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. It's very frustrating that they were not able to put a competitive NBA basketball team on the court without Joel. The Sixers looked very good, polished, you know, team with Joel on the court. I like the way Doc Rivers is using him. What's concerning is how poorly they looked without him. Dwight Howard isn't ready to be a starting center, you know, in those in those big minutes. Uh, Tony Bradley first action in a long time um i just in time i guess that's what what they'll figure out rotations when he's not on the floor but but they better figure that out now because if he's off the floor obviously i mean ben simmons didn't really do much yesterday and if he's a superstar that that he wants to be considered then then he's gonna have to make make these things happen himself yeah, that, that's, I mean, Daryl Morey coming into Philly, rejuvenating it, getting a front office guy in there, um, but I think it's going to come down to how Embiid and Simmons play together. And this rest thing, I don't want to single out the Sixers, but with how this season's going to be and with guys coming back from injuries and the schedule, this is not just going to affect one team. 
Uh, you saw the Clippers sit Kawhi, arrest Kawhi Leonard. They're down by 50 at halftime to the Mavericks. The Nets looked like the best team in the East, one of the best in all basketball. They sit a couple players. They're back to 500 after a couple losses. So, um, well, is that bubble teams that are tired of constantly playing basketball yeah. and the non-bubble teams that have been hungry for the last year? That's true. There's going to be a lot of those situations. I, I think uh, the other point I, I just wanted to bring up, I know it's probably sensitive, but are you pained by how Markel Fultz is looking? I don't watch much of the Magic, so <laughs> no. But I, I, I'm what, what I'll tell you is that uh, I think that role is going to be filled by the new uh, Tyrese Maxey uh, okay. addition. Okay. Uh, he looks very similar. He's going to take it to the hole. He's actually pulling the trigger on a couple threes. Not going in yet, but uh, I think there's confidence there and that they bring similar game. Maybe Markel's a better defender uh, just with his long arms. I, I noticed in the few few games I saw firsthand was but similar role as far as a backup point guard who can play with anybody on the floor has a lot of confidence and can go to the hole and get a hoop. You know, I put little stock into the NBA regular season in terms of, you know, records and seating and whatnot. Like the Lakers at 500, they're going to be right at the top and, and going to defend their title and have a great chance to do so. In the East, which is completely wide open in a lot of ways at the top, um, I do think Brooklyn is going to be, you know, a fascinating thing. Now, Dinwiddie is down for the year. That's going to be a big one. Uh, but if Durant's back and Kyrie, you have two of the top, you know, 10 players, 15 players in the league. The Sixers, you know, your guys are going to be in the mix. Giannis signing the max deal to uh, come back. They got Drew Holiday now uh, is another one as well. And uh, you have to be, if you're a Boston fan, impressed with how Tatum's played. So the East is four or five deep with teams that could make the finals. I didn't even mention last year's team, the Heat, yet that made it. So, um, or I the Pacers. And the Pacers, too, if, uh, if Odipo is fully, fully back like he you know claims to be. So I think the I think seeding necessarily might not be important this year, especially as we you know don't really have fans to uh, affect home court as much. Yeah, it depends on what they do with the playoffs again too. If they go bubble or not, and how far down this road this season they they end up getting with the COVID and, and vaccinations and all that non basketball stuff. But who knows? Those Cleveland Cavaliers are in first uh, place in the conference. Here they go. Here they go. Would you, uh, last thing, <laughs> and that last thing, I'll wrap this up. Would you make the move and try to get James Harden? I'm not really a fan of his game. I'm. Sure this is going back to, like, moves that the organization would do that the, the fan wouldn't do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I feel like I would watch, I'd be watching a game of knockout with Joel and Harden on the court at the same time. <laughs> they would just be, you know, shooting free throws yeah. all game. And and that's just like ISO, you know, Harden's going to take it, and then now I'm going to pass it to Joel, and he's going to do his nah, – I want movement. I want ball movement. I want – I don't want Harden if it's going to take Ben Simmons. I know I just was saying Ben Simmons is going to need to step up if, if, yeah. uh, if they're going to make this play. I think he still has a long, very good career in him, and I think it's just a matter – you know, like with Wentz, it's, a, it's up to him as far as how good he's going to be. And, I just – yeah. No, those are great points. I just don't like Harden, you know, as a teammate. <laughs> I mean, his game is one it's thing, right. and those are great points, but him as a teammate, him as, you know, supposed to be a leader, that's that's what I'm not a fan of. Yeah, and uh, that's kind of why I'm glad Dwight Howard is the backup center right now for Joel, who has, like, Dwight Howard's been through everything you can go through in this league, and I think that's that, that's going to be the main thing. He's going to be everything Al Horford was supposed to be. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating <laughs> to watch. I mean, we'll see. Horford, he's not making the money Horford made, so that's good from a salary standpoint. But yeah. I have a question for you, though. Yeah. How good do you think Danny Green is? Because I think he's a good defender who is an inconsistent shot, but a veteran yeah. presence. Well, my my but short answer it. is like, my he, short answer is he was one of the original three and D guys, and that was in the San Antonio days. He's got a lot of miles on him. He also isn't playing for one of the best coaches of all time anymore. No disrespect, but um, the fact I mean I know Doc's great, but you know Popovich kind of established him as that three and D guy. He is a great defender, and that's the underrated aspect of his game. That's why he gets on the floor so much. But the shot's inconsistent, and if you're having to count on him to you know be that big take that big shot every single time just about it might not go well for you but uh, having him out there to defend i think you could certainly do a lot worse and seth seems to be a more seth curry being a, more of a go to the hole to get in rhythm type yeah. of guy than a catch and shoot you know always in rhythm steph curry type yeah it's going to be fun i'm glad we got a lot of sports options with football dwindling down hockey will be picking back up pro and college basketball uh, it's good but tom this was a blast tom weisenbach here on the money mitch effect Thanks for coming on, talking some sports. And uh, like a lot of people out there, wishing you and everybody else a, a happy and healthy 2021. Absolutely. You too. Thanks again for having me. I always have a blast when I'm on with you. Next time, and then next time, you know, maybe we'll be able to, you know, do this in person or try to figure out a way where, you know, we're all we're all in the same place. Because it's been a while. I know it's, uh, you know, you used to live out here on the on the West Coast and, uh you know, we're we're getting we're turning the corner. I think we're all we're all getting to that place. But thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. No problem. Next time uh, I'm able, we'll definitely do it in person. Huge thanks again to Tom Weisenbach, one of the people that helped get this podcast off the ground in its infancy. We'll have to do this in person for sure. And a funny thing happened after we recorded. It was official that Ben Roethlisberger will be sitting against the Browns. Mason Rudolph time for the Steelers. Hopefully, in my case, that helps the Browns get into the playoffs. Thanks again to Tom for coming on the show. All right, Kent Brown's up next. Time to talk college football. Did the playoff committee get the four teams right? What went into that decision? We break down extensively. The two matchups in the semifinals were only a couple days away from that. Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Notre Dame, and some other New Year's Six games that we have our eyes on from the gambling perspective. It's Kent Brown on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect to talk college football with the playoff coming up at the end of the week, wrapping up 2020. With Kent Brown on the podcast. Kent Brown, former co host with myself, Matt Gothard, running with the Money Sports Gambling Podcast. He was a producer at Yahoo Sports, does a lot of gambling work for them. Kent, welcome to the show. And first off, bigger story than college football, bigger than anything we got going on. I want you to address the rumors that the last time you went out to a diner, you ordered a egg white omelet with very little oil, dry wheat toast, and some grapefruit juice. I can no longer confirm or deny if that actually occurred. It very well might have. I don't want to put myself in any sort of harm's way if that gets out to the public. But I'll just say that. That sounds like an order that somebody would make that I would enjoy. So it's possible. I don't want to say much more, but let's just say the the hint of a little bit of oil and the egg white, it's a pretty good touch. I know know your your server asked you what side you got, but we're not going to get into that right now. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> college football is uh, dwindling down in, in the year as long as uh, we've been following it. We haven't seen anything like this, but we're here. We're at the finish line. We made it. Not all of us in one piece. I'm excited for that. Uh, and I want to start right with the playoff. The four teams in, we were texting all the way through the process, the committee. Did you have any thoughts on just how this shaked out? Was this pretty straightforward in your mind, these four teams in this order? Anything to add? Any critiques, minor or major? I mean, I would say once the Notre Dame-Clemson game ended the way it did, it was pretty evident this was the way that they were going to go. I just I never really felt like Texas A&M was in play in comparison to an Ohio State team that would have beaten Northwestern and Notre Dame. Even if they lost to Clemson, I knew that they did enough throughout 11 games that would have got them men over A&M. The big question to me was just if Notre Dame and Clemson was close, would they then have kept Notre Dame ahead of Ohio State and had a third match? I think if it's close, that might have been what happened. But because Notre Dame just got blown out, it was a lot easier to justify putting Ohio State to three, having them have the match against Clemson, and then Notre Dame falling to four. So, yeah, there was nothing controversial, in my opinion, about the four teams and where they slotted them. You know, if you want to get into the is six games enough to get into the playoff compared to 10 or 11, that's a different argument. Mm -hmm. And I think for the committee, it's a little bit tough because they're supposed to put the best four in. They're not supposed to put the four most deserving in. And I think for Ohio State, you could make a legit claim Ohio State is one of the best four. You could also maybe make a claim that in their six games, they weren't one of the best four. But the issue is, who was going to be that next team? Yeah. Florida looked very good against Alabama, but that was their third loss. Texas A&M closed the season well, but in their biggest game of their season, they lost by 28 points. Notre Dame beat a number one Clemson. Ohio State beat a Northwestern, beat Indiana, went undefeated. So to me, the committee, I think, had a pretty easy choice when it came one through four. Again, Mitch, I think the only question would have been if somehow Florida beat Alabama, then there would have been some controversy because at that point, maybe Ohio State doesn't get in or maybe Notre Dame's not in. Uh, but the fact that it was a pretty clean slate, mm -hmm. I don't think the committee had to think too much about those four positions. Yeah, and just to you know, clear the air with with everything. You as a Notre Dame guy, me as an Ohio State guy. I understand from my perspective that there could have been a scenario where Ohio State, even at six and zero, only playing six games, you know, and other teams out there might have been better than them, might have been better suited. It just wasn't the case this year. Texas A and M. I mean, just to bring that up, I, the resume wasn't there. You know, it was they had the four to win for sure. But their season wasn't as remarkable as you would think it would take to get in on the outside, not even making your conference championship game. Uh, and you mentioned Florida. I mean, even if they would have beat Alabama and they played them tough for sure, that LSU loss was brutal. I just don't think there was a scenario where that any of the other four, any of the teams outside the top four, would have gotten in. And you mentioned the seating. That's a very good point. I, I just I wonder if the committee just didn't want to have a third game, a third matchup right out of the gate. It would have been unprecedented for sure, and we still might get that if the dominoes fall the way they do. But that was a that was an interesting thing. A close game with Notre Dame Clemson, maybe. But I still think the committee just wanted fresh matchups, and I thought I thought we were going to angle for this these four in this order from uh, the beginning of that day. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is like if Oklahoma didn't lose to Kansas State and their only loss was Iowa State and then they beat them, they would be in the playoff. Uh, yeah, same and thing. There, then mm -hmm. the argument, 
Yeah, then the argument would have been a bigger issue of does – see, to me, it's a six-win thing, and this is where I'm, I'm interested in – you know, I probably – had we not done this podcast, I still would have tried to talk to you leading into the playoff, you know, because I'm – you know, just personally, as somebody that, you know, follows sports really closely, played sports throughout my life, and, you know, we know that college football is more than any other sport in the United States. The games really do matter. You know, in terms of the NBA tonight, I'm a Miami Heat fan. They just <laughs> lost by like 50 points to the Milwaukee Bucks. That game doesn't mean anything because you nope. play 82 games. Where like in college football, playing six games and playing 11 games is drastically different. Yeah. And I understand if you listen to a lot of the coaches, why they are saying, and in particular Dabo Swinney, are saying, I don't think a team who plays half a season okay. is okay. on the same yeah. level as a team who plays double. I, I get that. And I, I do think that's valid just on the fact that it is a different season. Ohio right. State, and it's no fault of their own. It's the fault of the Big that, Ten. Yeah. The Pac-12 and the Big Ten mm-hmm. has been bad throughout all this, and we've been making jokes for the last three or four months about it. But I do think what Dabo Swinney's saying, I do think there is validity to that. I don't think he's just saying it because they're playing Ohio State. I think most coaches know, you know, I'll say this as an example. Notre Dame lost its starting center in its eighth game against Boston College a week after beating number one Clemson in its seventh game. Guess what Ohio State didn't have to do? They didn't have to play a seventh game or an eighth game. So there is, you know, I'm sure Notre Dame would like to have their starting center healthy for the playoffs. They don't have that because they played more games. Now, does this mean Ohio State's not validated? Of course not. I think Ohio State could earn their right to a title, clearly. But I get why some coaches are a little irritated because when you have to play a full season, it's a a lot harder than only having to play six games. Devo makes good points, but he talks way too much. Like, he keeps it going. Like, I got what I got the message. I get why he said it, and I actually don't think at first, it was necessarily taking on, taking on Ohio State directly, but this has turned into like a uh, legit rivalry. Also, like he mentioned in the recruiting ranks, Kent, and you know that he's kind of kept this thing going. And Dabo's a great coach, great recruiter, has built one of the best, probably the only program that's on level footing with Saban right now. But there's this self righteous yeah. side of him at times that's a little irritating, and, and, and this would be one because I get it, I understand it. He made the statement vote where he put Ohio State the eleventh. When you know he 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 doesn't believe that they're the eleventh best team. He even admitted and said that they could actually beat Clemson. Ohio State has that talent. When I don't think he would say that about you know ten other teams. But I do think though that there is truth to that. Again, no fault, like you said, to. Ohio State's own. If you want to rail on anybody, rail on the Big Ten and their leadership for not, you know, sticking to the first plan that they had, doing what the ACC and SEC did, um, as long, uh, you know, building in those bye weeks with the Big Twelve to where you can kind of reschedule. And I, I do, you know, I agree with a lot of that, a lot of that statement, a lot of that sentiment that it is harder for a lot of these teams, for all these teams that had to play more games. The fact remains for me, this playoff picture, there wasn't that team. There wasn't that Oklahoma that had one loss. The one loss, Florida. AM didn't do quite enough. And I think Ohio State got very fortunate to get in. But we're here. We're in the playoffs. Let's just move on to the games because that's where I think Dabo kind of likes to dwell on things. Oh, yeah. And here's the other thing with Dabo Swinney is he knows that he's not going to be in any position where his school is going to ask him to back off of a comment. Uh, I mean, he's made comments that have been way more 
controversial than this, whether it's coming to paying players or something about social awareness. There's certain things that a school might have stepped in. They didn't step yeah, in. He knows he's got like a lot that. of rope. So, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So right now, he can kind of say whatever he wants. And look, it's not something most, most coaches do. It's very rare that you see a coach flat out give bullet, bulletin board material to a school and then double and triple and quadruple down on it, which is what he's done all week. But, you know, the other thing that's funny, too, is you mentioned how this is a rivalry. The one thing about this, though, is Ohio State has to start winning one yeah. of these games. It's the same thing, you know, Ohio State and Michigan. The joke is, is it a rivalry? Well, Michigan never wins, so how much of a rivalry is it? We're at the point now with Clemson and Ohio State. We've seen it three times in the last decade. Clemson hasn't lost one of these yet. I'm not saying, look, Ohio State is way closer to Clemson than Michigan is to Ohio State. There's no doubt about that. But Ohio State needs to win one of these games. I think sometimes the people look at Ohio State and they put them with Clemson and Alabama, and that's just not the case. Ohio State has lost, and they've lost going away a few times in some of their biggest games over the last 10 or 15 years. Them, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, those teams on the biggest stage haven't shown up as much. Now, Ohio State did have the national championship in the first year of the playoff, but since then, it's been an over. They got shut out in one of their games, and then last year they lost a close game, but a game in which they still ultimately fell short. And I think this game, there's a real prove-it deal, because when you look at Ryan Day, he's been a favorite in every game in his career, except for the two games against Clemson. And if he loses both games, now the question starts becoming, it's a great program, it's clearly the, the, the top program in the Big Ten, and most likely the top program in the Midwest, unless Notre Dame happens to win their next two games. But the problem is, if you can't beat Clemson, then they're due, you know, I'm not saying it means that Ohio State's program is diminished, because they're clearly still the third best program, worst case. But if they win this game, then all of a sudden, they bump themselves up into that top tier or close to it with Clemson and Bama. So I think going into this playoffs in terms of the prove it, there probably isn't a team out of these four teams that needs to prove it more than Ohio State, just because we know the talent's there. With Notre Dame, you know the well, talent's that, that, not you know, it, to the it, level. Yeah, and, and Kent, that was the point I was going to bring up, and I'm not, I don't want to come off as just defending Ohio State because I agree with most of what you just said. Uh, they do have to start winning these games. They've proven that they are a team that's in the mix, consistently in the you know in the top ten, pretty much top five. But if they want to be considered, you know, at the level of Alabama and Clemson, absolutely, they have to start winning. I'm with you there. The prove it factor. We know that Alabama and Clemson don't really have to prove it. Saban has to prove nothing. <laughs> he hasn't had to prove anything in the last five years. It's just adding on. But the Notre Dame side of things, and again, this isn't to just kind of poke you know, holes at what you just said or poke at Notre Dame. But in your thought process there of saying, you know, they don't really have to prove as much, is that because this is maybe, in your opinion, the, the, the level, the, the plateau, so to speak, of where they can get to? Or is there another level for Notre Dame? Because if there is, I would say then, yes, they have to start winning this game, these games. Maybe, maybe there isn't. Well, I think the difference, what I'm saying is, on a pure talent level, you know, Notre Dame right now has two five-star players on their entire roster. Their last four recruiting classes, they've had one five-star. Alabama's had 21 five-stars. Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson in this last class alone, 
you have more five stars committed on their team than Notre Dame's had for the last 15 years. So <laughs> it's one of those deals where, like, if you want to say that Notre Dame needs to prove itself to win a national championship, which is obviously their ultimate goal, then yes, they need to show up and find a way to win this game. But what I'm saying is, I think what Brian Kelly's getting out of this team is, you know, as you said, maybe close to what they're able to accomplish. Now, in one given year, they can beat the number one team like they beat Clemson, or they can, you know, compete with the Georgia or compete with, you know, Oklahoma back in 2012 when they went undefeated. But the problem with the playoff is, in order to win it, you, you almost have to beat two extraordinarily great teams. And for Notre Dame, they might be able to do it once. That would be asking them this year to do it three times. And I just don't know if they have the team to do that. Like, I was talking to an Alabama friend of mine the other day about this, and, you know, he sent me an article saying, like, is this season already a success for Notre Dame? And I said, yeah, it is. Like, whether they win or lose any of their remaining games, them beating number one Clemson, getting to the college football playoff, is that's really good. And that doesn't put them into the Alabama or Clemson level and probably not Ohio State but then they're right there. You know, LSU won the title last year, so maybe you bump them up as well. But Notre Dame's there with Georgia. They're there with Oklahoma. And I don't know if this is their ceiling. Maybe it is. And, again, in a wild year, could this maybe be a, a playoff where Iowa State gets in and Notre Dame plays them and it's an easier semifinal? Potentially. But realistically, if you're going to say to me, who's more likely to beat Clemson and Alabama back-to-back, Ohio State? or Notre Dame, mm-hmm. I think you just look at both rosters and it's pretty definitively Ohio State out of those two. Well, why do you have Alabama friends, first of all? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have friends. I have friends. Of, as long as they're not like, well, even Penn State, I have family, but that's a little bit different. But hey, yeah, hey, not... you know what, man? It's, it's, it's also good to make yeah. fun of. I've been saying all year yeah. that Alabama's not going to win the title because of those horrible Aflac commercials that Nick Saban's mm-hmm. in. And part of me still thinks that might end up being true. Somehow, some way, like Saban, he didn't need that money. I'm not paying, look, I'm not faulting him for getting a payday on a commercial. But those commercials are so bad that, like, karma would indicate that Saban's bound to not be rewarded with a national championship the same year he's putting out those awful commercials. Right. Like, that's worse on his legacy than the Dolphins' job. I mean, it has to be. I would think, anyway. But... Easily, easily, way worse. Um, all right, Ken Brown, Money Mitch Effect. Let's look at these games. Uh, starting, we'll, we'll start with Alabama and Notre Dame. Uh, I guess we should also point out the lines on these games have stayed pretty firm from what I'm seeing. About 20.5 for Alabama coming down to, you can get it about 19.5, 19 is low uh, for Alabama. Uh, Ohio State Clemson is uh, a touchdown. It was started at 7.5. I think it's down to about 7 in most places. Uh, but Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Alabama, Kent, twenty point line, twenty point game. Seemed like it was something we were kind of on most of these lines ahead of time. What's your thought process going into this game with the Tide coming in as a big favorite and maybe the best offense in the Saban era? Yeah, I would say pretty definitively it is the best. Now, granted, they just lost their starting center in their eleventh game as well with Landon Dickerson, who was a first team All American. So that's a big deal and you know, maybe that's an adjustment that will be made. And for all we know, 
that could end up hurting them a lot more than what we could imagine. I mean, you look how good this offense is. They lost Jalen Waddell. What happens? Their other receiver steps up, and he's probably going to win the Heisman. So Chris Owens is their backup center. By all indications, he's a guy who could easily start. He's just not starting for them. So I think he would start for like 128 teams in Division One, just not on Alabama this year. But nonetheless, that's one thing that I feel like Notre Dame should at least look at early is if you're going to blitz, if you're going to send some pressure, send it up the middle early and see if the center adjusts because for this being his first start, it's not necessarily an opportune time that you would want your, your center to have his first career start. And Notre Dame does have, I, in my opinion, I think they have the best defense of the four teams in the playoffs. Clemson, when they're fully healthy, is right there. I do think Ohio State and Alabama's defenses are a step below the Notre Dame and Clemson defenses. But the problem is Alabama's offense, as we the best in the Saban era, and almost definitely going to put up at least 40 points against anybody. And for Notre Dame to win this game or even cover this game, they're going to have to be perfect in the red zone. They're going to have to be great on third down. And they've been amazing on third down this year on offense and defense. The problem is Alabama's offense is the best in the country. Like they don't. Down. Yeah, they barely even get to third down <laughs> in a lot of these drives. <laughs> exactly. I said that I was talking to my twin brother about that, and he goes, "Are they even in third down more than a few times a game?" And I said, nah, "You're probably right. It's probably like like two out of four each game because they're right around like fifty some percent. I think close to sixty. But uh, it's going to be a challenge. Like for, for Notre Dame, as we know, when they're at their best, they win the line play. They dominate the line of scrimmage they yeah. run the football they have big bodied receivers they have big tight ends who are athletic and can block but against alabama i don't know if that gets you 47 or 49 points so if you look what florida did it's Kadarius tony who's just you know like a jitterbug you can just toss him the ball at any point on the field and he can make six guys miss Notre Dame doesn't have that guy. There's no Golden Tate on this roster. There's no, you know, Michael Floyd. There's not, uh, I wish there was a Will Fuller. There's not those guys. This is more of a power team. And for Alabama, they have no weaknesses on offense at all. Again, maybe the center who's having his first start, that could become a weakness. My guess is it's not going to be much of a weakness, but uh, I'm interested in the challenge. You know, to me, if you're going to win the national title, you probably need to beat Alabama anyways. So if Notre Dame happens to play them on January 1st instead of January 11th, I guess we'll find out what they're made of. But uh, I'm not going to read a ton into the last Clemson game. I don't think that Notre Dame is that team. I think they proved themselves in the first 10 weeks that they are a much better team than when they played in that game. But the one thing Clemson did that was very smart, and you have to have the personnel to do this, but they – forced Ian Book to stay in the pocket. You know, a lot of times you think of college football or football in general, and you want the quarterback to be rushed and leave the pocket, and that's where you make a play. When Ian Book leaves the pocket, he's very good. And In fact, this year in the country, I know heading into the ACC title game, he was number one in the country in terms of of completion percentage when there was a blitz. What Clemson did is they pretty much just stuffed the outside – and kept everything in front of Ian Book, and they said, if you can beat us throwing through your line into the middle of the field, we can live with that, and he wasn't able to do it. They completed their first two third downs, and I don't know if they completed any third downs the rest of the game. And in this game, Alabama's best attributes on defense are their edge 
rushers. It's you know the outside linebackers, the cornerbacks, guys like that. I think they're going to try to model their defense after what Clemson did, and if they're successful at it, then Alabama is going to cover easily, and it's a blowout. If they're unsuccessful, then I think Notre Dame can make some plays and keep this game, you know, at least within that twenty-point margin. I think this might go a little better than the national title game, <laughs> the twenty twelve season. So take that for what it's worth. I my favorite bet in this game is the over because we we can talk about Bama's offense for a while. I love their ability to put up points. I think Notre Dame is actually going to be able to score a little bit on this Alabama defense. But you hit it. I mean, I, I don't know how you stop Alabama. No knock on you. And this isn't just a Notre Dame question. This is a question for the entire country. Um, Harris running the ball, and I'm all in. By the way, and Devontae Smith winning the Heisman. I, it looks like you know the AP the AP gave him the Player of the Year. I'm also just all mm-hmm. for him or somebody other than a quarterback winning this award. So maybe that's why I'm more excited. <laughs> yeah, it's been. I mean, it's been a while. We've seen a couple running backs. Uh, in fact, I believe I could be wrong about this, but I believe the last two non-quarterbacks were the two Alabama running backs, Mark that's Ingram right. and then Derrick Henry. So this could add to that. And those are also the only two. Yeah. Those are all. Those are the only two Alabama players to ever win. So yeah. imagine that. Alabama has never had a quarterback win the Heisman. And uh, yeah, if you look at this offense, we were joking about this the night of the Florida game, me, you, and Matt Gothard, where I said Notre Dame could put up 35 points in this game and still lose by 15 plus. <laughs> this could be a game, and I like Notre Dame's defense. I do think the cornerbacks are just okay. It's very hard for me to believe Alabama's not scoring at least 42 points. And that means Notre Dame is going to have to score unless they create three turnovers and score on two of those. Notre Dame's going to have to score at least six touchdowns. And that's just so difficult to do against any team, let alone an Alabama defense. I understand that this isn't the Alabama defense of 2012. You know, if you want to just compare this game to that game, Notre Dame's offense is better than that offense. Notre Dame's defense probably isn't as good as that defense. However, they're way more athletic. They have more speed than they had. But then if you look at Alabama, Alabama's defense is far worse than that defense. But Alabama's offense is superior to that offense. So, yeah, I just think it's a tough challenge, and I hope it's close. I would love to see a game where, you know, I'm going into the later stages of the third quarter – and it's at least within 14, I'll sign up for that and hope that they can somehow pull a great last 20 minutes out. Guess, my guess is they're probably going to be down closer to that 20 or 21-point margin, yep. and then it's more about do they have a backdoor cover. I'm with you. I do think the over is a solid bet because if Bama puts up that, let's say they put up that 45 points, all you need from Notre Dame in that case is what 22 points and you get the over solid 21 yeah well i'm glad we got i'm glad we have the heisman now to be quarterbacks and alabama players we're gonna grow it one (laughs) one group at a time and i personally by the way i personally i would vote trevor lawrence i don't think you should ding him because of COVID. i feel like this year has proven if you i mean again we have a team in the playoffs who played six games and it was a lot of COVID issues that had that conference right. and numbers are going crazy yeah. too like i mean we're, we're at a point with qb numbers like every year will look like the greatest thing that's ever happened at the position not to take anything away yeah. from you know mac jones and yeah. uh and uh cal trask um oh, i get it yeah. trevor lawrence is the best qb uh best player in the country for a deserved reason we're going to go now to that game uh with 
Ohio State and Clemson. About a touchdown. But I will say this. Yeah, yeah I'll say this. Though. It's no crime if Devontae Smith wins it or Mac Jones wins it or Trevor Lawrence. I think if Kraft won it, I think that would be a little bit weird considering Alabama did beat them in that final game. But nonetheless, if any of those three win it, I and I, I think it will be Smith, it looks likely. There is, I don't want to hear Trevor Lawrence got robbed or mm-hmm. Mac Jones got robbed. You know, that's not really the situation. That's like a few years ago when you had, it was Derrick Henry. I thought Delvin Cook was as good as any running back in the country that year. I don't believe he was even a finalist. You had Christian McCaffrey and you had Deshaun Watson. Like, all of those guys were deserving. <laughs> so whoever won it, and it ultimately was Derrick Henry edging out McCaffrey, but to me, if you would have given it to Deshaun Watson, I don't think he would have been undeserving as well. Like last year, mm-hmm. it was an open and shut case. It was clearly Joe Burrow. Some other years, it's pretty evident it's one guy and that's it. But like this year, you want to give it to Mac Jones? I personally wouldn't, but I don't think I wouldn't have an issue if he somehow wins it either. So we'll see, man. Hey, and you know what's fun is these guys might all get to play each other <laughs> in about – 11 days or 12 days so soon enough we'll know when they take the field we don't necessarily know who the best player is but one of them or two of them will get the whole best trophy at the end of the season and i'm sure for those guys that's what means the most well we know it's not a crime and if anybody knows what is or isn't a crime it's you so thank you for you know dropping that knowledge on us as well there's a reason i've been hanging out in florida all like throughout the holidays Yeah, among other things, there's a a pretty big reason there too. Uh, All right, Kent. That yeah. When you openly decide, when when you openly decide to go to Daytona Beach for a weekend, uh, when you live out in California and you're visiting Ponte Vedra Beach, I probably shouldn't even have said this much, but nonetheless, there are there are reasons. (laughs) There are reasons. All right, Kent. Uh, extradition rules aside, let's look at that Clemson Ohio State game uh, about a touchdown. Still, you mentioned that it's been one-way traffic in this mini rivalry with two playoff appearances, uh, matchups for the, these teams against each other. Clemson having their way in both. The last years came down to that interception in the end zone. I understand why Clemson's the favorite. Trevor Lawrence, ATN at the running back position. Rodgers, the receiving cores looked great. The defense has picked it up. Fields did not look great against Northwestern. Obviously, the Ohio State defense, the secondary isn't quite as good as the NFL-laden ones that they've had in years past. But if there is an X factor in this game, it is going to be Trey Sermon, obviously, with him setting the Ohio State single-game record in the Big Ten Championship game for rushing yards over 300-plus. If Ohio State, and this goes for Ryan Day as well, because I have been you know, a fan of his but also frustrated with the game plan at times, there's moments when it feels like they're asking Justin Fields to just do everything and take it upon himself, and while he hasn't been great, you'd like to think that maybe the running game becomes more of a factor because they have something special there. You'd like to see more balance. Do you think Kent, Ohio State's offense, is in a position to have success against Clemson in this game? I think, and you bring up a good point about this, because even the Michigan State game, now that game they were without, I believe, three of their starting linemen, and they might have even been without a wideout or two. In that game, it was like Fields putting on the Superman cape, and whatever he did is how they were going to score. But the game plan in that game was a little bit weird, but kind of forgivable because of all the players out. I think in the Northwestern game, it was weird because the one thing that was working throughout the game, they really didn't start and ramp up until what mid to late third quarter. And 
that's something that Ryan Day knows more about offensive football than any of us, and yet he was hesitant to pull that trigger. And I don't know if maybe in practice he wasn't necessarily sold on the running game, and clearly they went in with a game plan of pass first. And I thought all year, and this is watching Trey Sermon a bit at Oklahoma and then also watching Master Teague be more of like a one-cut north-south runner. He doesn't have a lot of wiggle. He's not a guy that's going to really make people miss in short yardage or even make make people miss in the open field. That's Trey Sermon. And I was happy to see for Ohio State's sake that they went with Sermon heavy in that game, and he clearly rewarded them for it. Northwestern is a different animal, though, than Clemson, clearly. And the main thing that Clemson can do and will do is bring pressure. Now, Justin Fields might escape from it the same way – Ian Book did in their first meeting, and frankly, the same way that Fields did last year quite a bit. And if he does that, they'll find open receivers downfield or Fields will be able to get your 12 or 20-yard run. And to me, the key to the game is going to be asserting that running game early because in Clemson's only loss, it was Notre Dame who ran the football for over 200 yards against them. And the first play of the game, they had a 65-yard touchdown that resulted in you know a score, and that changes the dynamic of the game. Now, with this set, that was without James Skalski, who's their captain of their defense, who's the middle linebacker. That's Mike Jones, who's their, who's their Sam linebacker and is really good. That's without Tyler Davis, who's their sophomore nose guard, who I'm not going to say he's on the level of Dexter Lawrence or Christian Wilkins yet, but he's certainly trending towards being a first-round pick in a year or two. And those guys being out really mattered. And I think Clemson's defense right now is at its best. On the other hand, Ohio State should be about as healthy as they've been. And, you know, look, we looked into this before the show, just double-checking about, like, you know, personnel and Ohio State players being able to be healthy for this game. And by all accounts, if Chris Olave is ready to go, you put him and Garrett Wilson out there on the field, it's there's huge. no defense. Yeah that's going to be able to contain those guys for 60 minutes. Now, maybe Ohio State ends up only scoring 21 or 24 points, and if they do, is that enough to beat Clemson? It wasn't last year. I want to see Justin Fields get rid of the ball a little bit quicker. I think he has so much confidence in his offensive line and so much confidence in his receivers that he's almost waiting for the perfect opening as opposed to just trusting that the receiver will be at the spot. And obviously, maybe it's a little bit being gun shy because last year he threw to a spot. Alave decides to go off the route, slips, and thus Nolan Turner ends the game. On the other hand, Nolan Turner is out for the entire first half in this game. He had the targeting penalty in the second half against Notre Dame. And, you know, not that he's their best defensive player, but he is the leader of that secondary, and he's a, a veteran that you want out on the field. I think for Ohio State, I'm, I'm a little bit unimpressed with the defense. Uh, if you look at advanced numbers, and I'll be interested in your take on this in a moment, is yeah. Ohio State's defense has really been underwhelming, and it's against a lot of mediocre to bad offenses. You know, I think when Indiana, when they played them, when Penix was at full strength, that was a good offense, but it wasn't anywhere near a top 10, top 20 offense, in my opinion. A lot of the offenses they've played have been – average to below average in terms of power five and yet the ohio state defense they're not getting after the quarterback with regularity as much they're not 
getting as many interceptions. And we knew the secondary wouldn't be as good this year, even with a full season. But it does look like the defense, like if you're going to say to me going into this game, what's the worst unit on the field? By far, the worst unit is Ohio State's defense. It's like, you know, you can make a debate. mm -hmm. You can make a debate between the two offenses or you can make a debate between Clemson's defense. But that Ohio State defense, they're going to have to play the best game they've played by far or they won't be able to compete. Yeah, they're going to have to step up, and you're right on on most of that. You know, the like I mentioned, the secondary doesn't have the personnel that they had. They've struggled in a lot of these games. I still think I still do think in the trenches they have a, a pretty good core. They don't have the Chase Young or, or the Bosa types, but they still have some pretty good players. Part of the thing, though, not to obviously every team's dealing with COVID loss and some players that have been out. Uh, where Ohio State's been, you know, hurting their defense is also the offense. I mean, in that game, in that Northwestern game, I actually thought once the defense settled in, they played pretty good and actually kept the Buckeyes in it for a lot of what Fields wasn't doing. The Indiana game was the other one where they got up, I think, 21 points, and Ryan Day's still calling pass plays, and and Fields is throwing interceptions when you think, okay, you're up 21, just run the ball. It does invite Indiana back into the game, and of course, you could have stopped them. Uh, But I agree. Sean Wade in in the secondary has to step up. These are guys that want to play on Sundays. This is a chance to do it because you're playing against a lot of talent uh, that plays on Sunday. Uh, you know, but I mentioned the, the, the interior, uh, I do want to shout out Haskell Garrett, who I think, I think is a solid player that Ken is the Ohio state player who you will recall was shot in the face, trying to break up a fight, uh, break up some incident in Columbus, uh, which just goes to show you don't help people. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Sometimes, sometimes you want to help somebody. Other times you want to avoid some serious penalties, but yeah, he's had a great year. And again, Ohio State, in terms of individual talent, unless there is that game wrecker like Nick and Joey Bosa and Chase Young were, where those guys were so good that no matter what you did, they were going to make plays, I do think that you can game plan right now against this Ohio State defense. And there's some real vulnerable in terms of just being able to say, if they do this, we'll take advantage of this. And I'm interested in seeing how they counteract because, you know, I'm curious on – you know, on your level as an Ohio State fan, heading in the last year, it did feel like it was kind of a toss-up game. Like, I don't think yeah, most right people thought. It, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think most people thought it was going to be a blowout. In this year's game, I think what I've seen so far, I think it's more likely to be a double-digit win for Clemson than it is to be an Ohio State win. If mm-hmm. I had to predict right now, I would say Clemson winning by 10 to 20 seems more likely to me than Ohio State winning, and I wouldn't have thought that heading into last year. Well, I mean, I guess I'm going to, you know, homery think out of the box and, and think that Ohio State can win this game. I know, I know it's not likely. I know it's not probable in a lot of ways. I do think there is that added motivation of coming off of just a dreadful performance on offense. And I want to say this with all due respect. Trevor Lawrence, amazing. Offense is great. There's been better iterations of this team. Like, I don't think this is peak Clemson. I think that they do have some vulnerabilities, but they have a ton of talent, uh, and they've been here before, and this is a very experienced team. But I think Ohio State can have success in this game, and I think, like you said, the defense has to step up, and uh, I think they will. Um, I'm expecting uh, where that over-under is at about uh, – where, where do we have it right now? It looks like it's about 66 I still yeah. kind of, I still, 
I think it's going to go slightly. I think it's going to go under, but I think it's going to be slightly. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, I would say right now my my lean would be I think Clemson scores around the 30 to 34 point mark. I think Ohio State's kind of at like a 17 to 21. So if that's the case, let's just say best case, in my opinion, for both offenses, that's 34-21. That's still seven points under. I, and again, sometimes in these games, you know 15 minutes in, you're way off. And it might be 14-13 at the end of the that's first. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, oh boy, I was way off on this. I don't... This is a playoff. Like I really don't want to bet any unders for either of these games because I want to see the offenses. Like if you just tell me on paper, now granted, I'm a Notre Dame fan. You're an Ohio State fan. You clearly don't want to see Trevor Lawrence in that offense succeed. I don't want to see Mac Jones in the Bama offense succeed. But just on a fun level, it would be nice if you watch both these playoff games and you see competent offense from all four teams. It's just like it's going to be a more fun game than if you see. 17 points for Notre Dame or 20 points for Ohio State. You know, if it's 36-33 in both games, that's going to be a fun Friday afternoon and Friday evening to watch. And I I, I also am interested with Ohio State that, you know, I don't want want you to think or the people listening to this to think that I'm downgrading what they're capable of. I think Ohio State's capable of so much more than we've seen. And that's why I keep saying just based on what I've seen – it's a little bit harder for me to, like, again, when, and this is the problem with playing six games as opposed to 10 or 11, you start to know more about teams and you get a bigger appreciation for what teams do well and what they don't do well when they're into the full season and we get into these bowl games and these playoffs. With Ohio State, this is the first time now in the six years that we've had the playoffs, as it's six or seven, 14, 15, 16, 17, so, so the seventh year, I should say this is the first time we've seen a team that's really only in midseason form. And, yeah. you know, to, so on the positive level of Ohio State being healthier than the other teams, just strictly based on less games and less wear and tear, that's a benefit. But the one negative is these other teams have also got to work out a lot of the things that they might have struggled with in game five or game six. Or even in game four, you go, okay, when we get to our bye week and week eight, then we'll incorporate a new game plan. If Ohio State's clicking and they're hitting at all cylinders, you brought up a point, which is this is not the 2018 Clemson team. Now, this is a senior Travis Etienne and a junior Trevor Lawrence, while that team that won the national championship was a freshman Trevor Lawrence and a sophomore Etienne just by default. They're bound to be much better players now, and clearly they are, than they were two years ago. But yeah, this is not this is not a D line that has Cleveland Furl, Christian Wilkins, uh, you know, Austin Bryant. I know Dexter Lawrence was suspended for those playoffs, but him. Like this is a D line that is worse. This yeah. is an offensive line that I think is slightly worse. And the, they don't have. There's no Justin Ross this year. There's no uh, T Higgins. There's guys that on the outside that maybe Ohio State can take more of an advantage of. And you know, I hope they show up and bring their a game because if they bring their a game then it's going to be a close game because i don't think this clemson team is overwhelmingly special if a team of ohio state's caliber plays their best i as i said five ten minutes ago i'm just more concerned with i haven't seen them play anywhere near their best and it's hard for me to think that all of a sudden 
in a 10 or 12 day span, especially when some of those guys, you know, were dealing with COVID issues within the last two weeks. It's hard for me to believe that they're going to be playing their A game when they haven't shown their A game all year. Like, I'll just ask you this. If you had to rate their best game they played all season and then rate it from a scale from A to F, which game is it and yeah. how would you grade that for their best game? It's, it's In my opinion, I would probably go it's the Indiana game and it's B minus. I mean, plus. Penn State-ish. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, Penn State was terrible this year, but that was before the wheels completely came off. No, I mean, it's a good point. Um, we'll see. I mean, I... I think Ohio State has to show up, has to play well, has to bring their A game. Clemson has some vulnerabilities, but it could be it could be a runaway for Clemson. You never know. Uh, I'm going with Ohio State. You're going with Clemson. I think we're both going with Alabama to win the national title. <laughs> so I think that's kind of yeah. I would at. say yeah. I would yeah. I, I do think uh, you know obviously I think that Clemson does give them a harder challenge than maybe Ohio State or Notre Dame would. But yes, as of now, I just. I mean, joking aside with the Aflac commercial and all that stuff, it's just what I've seen out of this Alabama offense is so good that it kind of is like LSU last year, where even if LSU's defense was struggling, they still had the offense that was going to just beat whoever they were up against. And I think Alabama is pretty similar to that. And, uh, you know, but not, not to mention just on betting note, like, you know, I don't know if we're going to touch upon any of the other New Year's Six oh, games, yeah. but there are one or two. Okay, good. Doesn't take I, I wanted to mention that in passing yep. too, as we you know, as we move along and wrap this up, Kent Brown uh, on the money Mitch effect. I mean, these games are are great, obviously for quality of football, but we're gamblers, we're degenerates. I mean, we, you know, you're in Florida for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. I do know there's some other games that I wanted to get your opinion on, other New Year's Six games, and I want to start though with, you know, we can just kind of fly through these. The one that I'm circling is Cincinnati and Georgia. It should be a fun game, and uh, Georgia. Georgia's kind of that team the last few years that was like one play away from the playoffs, mm-hmm. although this year they clearly weren't anywhere close to that. But now Georgia seems to be playing its best football at the end of the season. But Cincinnati, man, you watch them play, and I actually would have just based on body of work and resume, I thought Coastal Carolina probably deserved the nod out of the group of five this year, considering their big wins. But when you just look at Cincinnati, their defense is complete. Desmond Ritter has been so much better this year than he was last year. And when you look at the Cincinnati team, I think that offensively they're not to the level of Florida or Alabama, the teams that beat Georgia this year, obviously, but defensively, they're going to challenge you. They're going to make you earn your points. And this isn't a Georgia offense that, you know, on paper, they're full of five stars, but this isn't an offense that week in and week out showed any consistency that they should be a team that Cincinnati should be afraid of. Uh, My guess is that Georgia ends up covering this game and they probably pull away late, but I feel like there's only two ways you kind of play this. You either take the favorite and give the points, or you just take the money line out right on the underdog. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I feel like that's because if you look at these type of games, isn't that kind of what happens a lot? Yeah, it's this is the like prove the it team. game for Cincinnati. I mean, in their yeah. mind, this is where the stakes kind of say, you know, you're you're either going to have a beatdown where Georgia just has the talent advantage, or you're going to have that Central Florida Houston when Tom Herman was there moment where it's like, okay, we can play with these guys and, and not only play with them but beat them. Uh, but it could be Northern Illinois all over again. So that's why this is a fun one too. Uh, to, to look at. I'm with you. I think I'm going to sprinkle on the Cincinnati money line there. 
Um, and I think uh, the, you know, the biggest line swing that we saw in New Year's Six games, which kind of start uh, coming tomorrow, is that Florida-Oklahoma game with everybody sitting out on Florida just about except Trask going from Florida minus three to about Oklahoma minus four, which you still have to lay points on, a, on an Oklahoma team that could be shaky. But uh, if Florida's top guys don't play, I think you got to pick the Sooners here. It's a weird game because if everybody for Florida played, I do love in this situation the Gators to outscore the Sooners. Uh, Oklahoma has definitely showed a lot of flaws this year. If you look at the Iowa State, both games, you know, Iowa State in the first game found a way to win, but it wasn't a well-played game for either team. And then in the last game, I mean, they were up 24 to seven at the half and they held on for dear life to survive. If Brock Purdy was even, you know, if he was just average in that game, Iowa State wins the Big 12 championship and knocks the Sooners off for the second time. So there's not a lot on Oklahoma's level. Like, I don't buy into – I understand that Alex Grinch is better as a D coordinator than what Oklahoma was three, four, five years ago. But this is still not a team to me. If they're playing Alabama or they're playing Clemson this weekend, I don't think they hold either of those teams you know, down <laughs> yeah. whatsoever. Uh, on the other hand, for Florida, as you said, Kyle Pitts – Hey, look, hey, the one guy I'll say who's not a Heisman finalist, if you want to vote Kyle Pitts in your Heisman top three or you want to vote him number one, no issues with me. You saw hey, like if you were drafting, Florida if you were drafting players in college football, it wouldn't take very long before he's off the board. Yeah, yeah he would go. He would go before Matt Jones, and he, depending on personnel, he might go before you know a, another high end. He probably goes before Trask to be honest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's a superstar, but you lose him, you lose Kadarius Tony, you lose Trayvon Grimes, you know, former Ohio State Buckeye. Like, those are all significant losses, and they also just don't run the football well. Like, this is not a Florida team that now could say, okay, well, we know we run the ball well, so maybe Trask doesn't throw 400 yards. They're not going to win if Trask isn't the Kyle Trask he's been all season, and without all those weapons, it's hard to believe he'll be that. Uh, so this is kind of a game that I think you have a lesser Florida team and an Oklahoma team with a ton of flaws. But yeah, at this point, also Oklahoma, they've kind of, they should have a chip on their shoulder. If you look at Oklahoma, they've been losing big games in these New Year's six and in the playoffs quite a bit. Well, I think it'd be a nice you know, cherry on top of their Sunday to end the season by saying we closed out this year avenging our loss against Iowa State, yeah. and then winning the Big 12 championship and closing with you know an impressive Cotton Bowl victory over Florida. If you do that, I think that grades out to be a really good job by Lincoln Riley and what is pretty much known this year as a transition year where they didn't have their Heisman finalist quarterback. They, mm-hmm. they are not going to have a number one pick. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think they clearly are showing just based on opt-outs alone but they value this game a lot more than Florida does. Now, Dan Mullen, on the other hand, he's a really good bowl game coach. If you look at his track record at Mississippi State and Florida so far, he's been about as consistent a bowl game coach in terms of winning and showing up as anybody. But as I said, you lose your best three offensive skill guys and you don't run the football well. There's only so much you can do. And I, I, Dan Mullen, I think X's and O's wise, is a really good coach. I have a hard time believing he's going to scheme up 40-plus points in this game. Yeah, 7-2 and two in bowls. I'm excited to watch that one uh, tomorrow, tonight as this drops. Um, Kent, always a pleasure to chat with you. Any other uh, bets you like before we uh, let you go? 
Well, you know it wouldn't be a podcast with you if I didn't talk about <laughs> okay. the great people from the Hawkeye State <laughs> and Iowa State. And this is a game, I don't know what I'm missing with this line, but it's the Fiesta Bowl. This is an Oregon team that the only reason they're ranked is because they, the committee justified they have to put somebody in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 champion had to be 25th. There's no logical way Oregon should be ranked based on the, what we saw the this Pac-12 year. The Pac-12 champion that came easily, in second in their division. The Pac- that came in second in their division, at Pac-12 champion, didn't look good. But that offense against USC in the second half was abysmal. And again, Iowa State beat Oklahoma earlier this season. They nearly beat them again. And frankly, as I said, kind of had some struggles that I think they kind of cost themselves that game. I look at this game, and if you're just looking at the line, so it's 57-ish with a four-and-a-half to five-point line. So what Vegas is saying is they're seeing it 31 to 26, roughly. I don't see Oregon getting to 26. I think Oregon might be lucky to get to 20. I mean, Cape on Thibodeau and some of the defense is disruptive enough that they could easily force two turnovers, have short field, and get 10 or 14 points off turnovers. But if you're expecting Tyler Shuck and and or the switch of Anthony Brown being their short yardage game of like change of pace guy, if you're thinking one of those two guys, it looks like they had no confidence when they played USC. And USC is not even close to being as good as Iowa State. I think Oregon's in for a long game. I think this could be a game where it's like 33 to 17, 33 to 20. You know, maybe if Iowa State punches one in late. I mean, Brees Hall is a Doak Walker finalist and first-team All-American. He might be able to break a 60- or 70-yard run in the fourth quarter. I think Iowa State could win this game going away. So I would look at Iowa State to win, cover, and then Oregon under their team total. If you can get Oregon, if that team totals up there around 26 or 27, or if it's somehow at 27 or 28, I'd feel very good about Oregon under that team total and I think it's very likely they don't even reach 21 so that's the bet the great people of Iowa State I I love it I love the uh the Cyclones in that game as well over under scares me because the Oregon offense can be Jekyll and Hyde and Iowa State might just run away and start covering it themselves so I don't know about the over under in that one but I like Iowa State as well uh, Kent. Well, that's always, what I'm saying. More, yeah. more, more the under, more the under team total. That's the thing for Oregon. Total. I think just under team total. Just mm-hmm. look for Oregon's number. If it's above 25 or 26, it's probably going to be around that 26 and a half mark. I feel very confident they don't get to 27 or 28. And you know, it's always good sometimes. Uh, betting unders in games isn't all that fun, but as we've learned this year, like a little bit more than in the past. One good thing about betting a team total is it doesn't really matter what the other team does as much. Can't wait to see how this all shakes out. We got the playoff games coming up on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, some good football as well, bowl games. Finishing strong on the year. Kent Brown, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you coming on. Have a happy new year in Florida if you are, of course, free. Uh, but thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. <laughs> of course, man. It's always a good time. And, uh, when I'm back in California, we'll have to get together, and uh, it's very possible we might see uh, Brown Steelers in a playoff game, and 
Uh, I guess we'll have to see if Mason Rudolph and Miles Garrett will cross paths on Sunday afternoon and what will happen in that one. Hey, that's Walter Payton, Award Man of the Year finalist, Miles Garrett, with Mason Rudolph. <laughs> uh, we shall see. Ken Brown, thanks again for coming on the show. Of course, buddy. Have a good one. That's going to do it for this week's show and this year's catalog of shows for the Money Mitch Effect. Big thanks again to Tom Weisenbach and Kent Brown for coming on the show. As always, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. You can find the Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page and follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. We've had a lot of sports this year, and it's going to keep going in 2021 with some UFC cards on deck. Hockey will be starting soon, and even baseball's peaking up with the San Diego Padres getting aggressive. Blake Snell looks like you, Darvish. They're, they're making some plays there. Also got a lot of tennis to start up with, Delray Beach and, and uh, Abu Dhabi. We got some action there next week, so the tennis season will be going. It's a good time for sports fans, of course, with college football at its ending point just about, and the NFL getting ready to start the playoffs, and hopefully my Browns will be a part of. So thanks to everybody out there for listening. More shows in the future. The Money Money, the Money Mitch Effect. Yeah, I said my name twice. I liked it a little better that way. But the Money Mitch Effect will continue to roll strong and roll on in 2021. Thank you for listening. Couldn't do this show without each and every one of you guys and girls. This is going to do it for the Money Mitch Effect. I'm Mitch Michaels. Until next time, keep enjoying sports and have a happy and healthy 2021.